0: Welcome to the CIO Evolution. In this podcast, we'll explore the Chief Information Officer's role in executing a new ongoing leadership imperative, digital transformation that promotes agility and resilience. How do CIOs upgrade legacy networks? What are the financial challenges CIOs face? And what are the security measures that are required in the new work from anywhere mobile and cloud-based world?
1: Welcome to episode 26 of the CIO Evolution. I'm your host, Chris Jablonski, Director of CXO Revolutionaries and Community. One of the biggest topics in enterprise technology this year centers on corporate boards and cybersecurity oversight in light of new SEC regulated company requirements for cyber accountability. Who better than to invite a couple of board members and industry experts to explain the implications of the new rules and what it all means for boards and executives alike, particularly CISOs. In a recent live virtual panel moderated by Kavitha Mariupan, Executive Vice President of Customer Experience and Transformation at Zscaler, Andy Brown, a member of Zscaler's board of directors since 2015 and CEO of Sand Hill East, joined Sam Curry, Vice President and CISO in residence at Zscaler to share incredible stories and lessons from their experiences that can help guide your organization. Sit back and enjoy the discussion.
2: Well welcome everyone to our second Executive Connect Live and thank you for joining us. I'm Kavita Maria Executive Vice President of Customer Experience and Transformation here at Zscaler. Uh, today, we're honored to be joined by two industry-leading voices in cybersecurity and a digital transformation. Um, Andy Brown, who's a member of Zscaler's Board of Directors um, since October 2015, and also the CEO of Sand Hill East, um, as well as Sam Curry, VP and CISO in Residence at Zscaler. Well, gentlemen, welcome to LinkedIn Live today.
3: Thank, thank you for having us. Yeah. Thank
2: you. Um, you No, great to have you both. And we really look forward to um, audience participation today in today's conversation. Our discussion today really is about cyber risk and boards of directors. Um, So please do add your questions in the comments field and we will endeavor to answer as many questions as possible. So let's get started. I think I really want to kind of set the stage today uh, this morning on, you know, framing the new expectation for corporate boards as it pertains to cybersecurity oversight. So, Andy, I want to start with you. Congratulations on the new book, Cybersecurity, Seven Steps uh, for Boards of Directors, that you co-authored with uh, Helmut Ludwig, who is a professor at the Cox School of Business um, and who serves on many boards. Also, um, Helmut used to be the CIO of um, Siemens, um, you know, prior to his um, foray into kind of academia. But what was the response? Uh, what has the response been like since you know this the launch of this book? I believe you released it at the National Association of Corporate Directors Summit last month.
4: Well, the response honestly has been pretty overwhelming. I mean, we've had um, a tremendous amount of uh, discussion, particularly at the NACD event, both in the panel and then downstairs. We signed books for a couple of hours, and we were listening to what board members had to say. And I think for many board members, the responsibility has been well understood for a while but how to act on it i think has been a bit trickier Uh, now with some of the uh, events that have happened in the last few months particularly some of the eight ks that have been filed and then refiled and refiled and so on i think there's been a a realization that the um thought that needs to be put into how you deal with the sec disclosures is is very very serious indeed and how you want to to look as a company and also how you want to make sure that you're compliant with the exact uh, terms and conditions of the ask. I think the other thing that's come up, particularly in the lunch we held with the NACD last week uh, in, in New York, is that the definition of materiality is definitely a topic on board members' minds, there's no doubt about that, but also the level to which you should disclose processes that you're using in crisis management, which is also a requirement of the uh, of the SEC ask. So I think that that conversations um, was serious. I mean, we talked about tabletop exercises. We talked about what level of connection should exist uh, between the board and the executive team. We also talked a lot about the collective responsibility of the executive team uh, for making sure that the CISO alone is not the person in the seat um, for for uh, accountability and that actually the executive team is, is participating in that too. So those are those are the main things, Kuiper.
2: Team sport, right, Andy? Um, Team sport,
4: collective responsibility. It's a Margaret Thatcherism, but it works pretty (laughs) well.
2: Shared shared responsibility model. Um, You know, Sam, I wanted to point the next question to you. Um, you Talk about kind of the seven steps, you know, and and kind of oversimplify the seven steps, right, where get on board, prioritize, assess, understand the tech, understand the non-tech factors, look at overcoming some obstacles, measure and repeat. When we think about this, what are some of the most uh, you know, challenging you know, factors here? Mm-hmm. Uh, and what deserve more attention than others like to prioritize?
3: Well, I think I think the seven steps sound deceptively simple, but the devil's in the details. Um, I, I can't stress enough. I think the biggest problem in cybersecurity today is, in fact, not a technical set of problems. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think it's the lack of alignment between most information security departments or cybersecurity and the business and um, it's because most of us came up through the ranks, and we weren't taught business skills. We, we, we are seen to be perhaps hobbyists in some cases. Uh, best case, perhaps we're seen as a tech function, and we're we're seeing. We know we're supposed to be a risk function. We know that much, and we know that that's the language we're supposed to have with the business. But we're not aligned with the other risk functions, and so you know, risk is managed elsewhere in finance, in operations, in legal, in sales. And yet we don't speak the same risk language. It's obvious to us that we deal with risk. And so we don't measure it in this fine-grained way. And we don't use the same metrics. We don't use the same way of mitigating it and reporting it. We have risk registries, but very often they're not aligned with corporate ones. Now, uh, where Andy started, I think, is, is very important because uh, the discussions of what values we have as a corporation, that's actually the hard stuff. The priorities that we have, the ethical frameworks, and then we test it with with the the tabletops, the, the the things that make it real. Our brains can't tell the difference between a simulation and reality in many cases, and so, you know, what we want is when the actual crises arrive, not to be for the first time experiencing it. We want to have been through that in our minds, found the rough spots, and said, well, in this case. What does come first when it's insider information versus privacy data versus, I mean, when you've got tier one things to worry about and you have to think, this is like the which child matters more horrible question. No, nobody wants that, right? We're parents, we don't ever want that. What do you do in a crisis? How do you do triage just like a doctor, um, if he or she is in a, in, a, in an emergency room, who, what time, what patient do they spend their time on? That's a horrendous thing to think of. And you, you can't do it if it's the first time you're doing it and you've got the adrenaline pumping. And so practice rational thought because we'll get the technical details right. We will if we've done the hard work up front. So those seven steps seem deceptively simple, but they're not. So, Kabith, I, hope, I hope that sets the stage a bit because the big stretch, I think, for most of the cybersecurity functions is getting to align with the business, figuring out what the business priorities and the ethical and the value related ones are first.
2: I think there's also the aspect of like, the materiality of kind of the nature of the industry right and you know what the regulatory framework looks like for that specific industry as well right i think mm-hmm. that might govern or or guide some of the the priorities oh, yeah. right
1: oh I yeah mean,
3: there's some things like do you pay a ransom <laughs> or not right and and uh, this is not a trivial question it's one that's being that's being debated what laws exist what commitments mm-hmm. exist in some cases you can't if it's a terrorist organization for instance there could be legal reasons not to um, in other cases, when human life is on the line, even if there's a law against it, maybe you should. If you're a hospital, like one of the large teaching hospitals, and you've got 100 people under surgery, and uh, suddenly the systems go away, or if you're a nuclear power plant and you can't read this, the temperature of the cooling systems or what the state of the rods are, what do you do? Uh, and these are things that have to be gamed out. They have to be thought through from a business level at risk, and then you have to you actually have to
4: play it through.
2: Scenario planning and anything only to, to add to that specifically on prioritization.
4: I think probably the most important thing is to understand posture, you really got to decide um, consciously uh, what position you want to take and also who you're empowering to make decisions in a crisis when maybe you can't get everyone that you need together on a call. Um, you know, so I, th- I think um, not only is role-playing important, but the assumption that much of the underlying technology you use to even run your business, which might include how you do role-playing, by the way, is not available at the time. One of the best tabletop exercises I've done was on a, another public board that I uh, was on, where two two minutes into the the, the test, uh, Zoom broke, and, and Zoom was not available. Zoom was denied of service attack. That was part of the scenario. And all of a sudden, everyone had to scramble to figure out are going to get in touch with everyone. Do we even have everyone's um, phone numbers, uh, you know, and so on and so forth. So just playing through some of those things and based on my prior experience in financial services with 9-11 and so on, my answer is depend on nothing. Assume you have to have everything from scratch. Zero, zero base your assumptions. And then I think you're in a good place.
2: Oh, that's good advice. Um, so let's let's shift a little bit. Um, let's, I'd like to kind of, um, explore a little bit how we can help our audience understand, you know, the role of the CISO, right, in, in building support for cyber initiatives at a board level. I mean, more and more, we're starting to see, you know, not just the CISOs updating kind of the, the audit committee and the risk committee, but, you know, there's obviously the readout at the board level, there's there's the um, uh, executive team having subcommittees as well, you know, into in terms of how we're, we're, we're you know, this risk oversight is is managed within that organization, right? So how can they build support for this within their their organizations? Because so every organization has a different level of maturity, and, you know, um, obviously, politics, culture, all kinds of things, governance. Um, perhaps Sam, will start with you, and then yeah. and Andy.
3: Jump in. Uh, so I had a manager many years ago who said, you know, there's three kinds of relationships you have, you have up, right? And, and you'll keep your boss happy, or you'll probably lose your job, right? I mean, that's going to happen. And then there's people who report to you and they'll probably keep you happy or they'll lose your, their jobs. right? Um, but you can't succeed without peers and um, they don't. nobody has to keep anybody happy in, that, in those relationships. And so I think I mentioned the gap between security and, and the business. Um, as, a, as a CISO in particular, you get there and I think the hardest thing to realize is you're not supposed to be the smartest cyber person in the company anymore. You're in fact supposed to be a business person first. And that that is difficult to understand. Your your job is now a series of conversations, so that the company gets to acceptable risk for acceptable return. And you're going to have to drive some transformations for the company. This is tough. So you you're going to have to you're going to have to build uh, lateral support. You're going to have to be a social role, a logistics role, and then you're going to have to drive and make sure that your department cares about things beyond cyber. You have to demonstrate you care about revenue. You care about you care about things like cost and customer satisfaction and employee efficiency. The things that we didn't do coming up through cyber. You've got to show it. You've got to break bread. You've got to share MBOs, for instance. And you've got to get close to the customer pain. You've got to get out there and meet the customers. I often say, you know who the cyber executives are, right? It's, it's actually the CIO and the CTO and the CFO. They just don't know it. And so you've got to give them a chance to own a piece of it. And so, whenever cyber things come up at the C level, don't jump on it. I, I've made this mistake. And so, before you go to the board, before we even talk about talking to the board, um, nobody should be surprised by what's in your report to the board, either at the board level or among your peers. And you know, when you go to give a presentation at the C level, you should you everything should have been socialized ahead of time, right? Not that there should be no surprises, and you should know the impact you're going to have on everyone else's programs. And you should care about that. And they should know that you do Uh, alignment means when you're sitting across from someone, they know you want the same outcomes generally. Otherwise, you're going to go in there and say, this is what I want to do because risk, 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 risk. Right. And they're going to be sitting there secretly thinking, "But what about my SLAs? What about my what about my cost containment goals? What about my tickets that I have to manage down to a certain acceptable level? What about, et cetera? And if you haven't spent the, the time and the effort demonstrating you care about those things, you're gonna fail.
2: That's hmm. no, um, good insight. I mean, Abby, I wanna build on that a little bit. And I think it's often misunderstood that the board makes these decisions, right? Let's talk a little bit about kind of the role of the board versus the role of the executive team. I have a, a question here from, from our audience around, uh, what is the optimal cadence for conducting these tabletop exercises? Should the board be involved? Should the board not be involved? You know, what? Non. I think let's maybe help define the role of the board versus the exec team versus what should be done internally and where uh, we need be, you
4: know, kind of providing oversight. Um, I think the answer is yes. <laughs> so, so um, <clears throat> should there be tabletop exercises where the executive team? works with their own organization to figure out how they should respond in that situation 100 percent yes should there be a well-defined process that that describes how the board is engaged and in what context absolutely yes there should be should there be a common understanding of the relative risk of one thing versus another thing absolutely so when you think about building a budget and you think about building the CISO budget or the risk budget all of these risk trade-offs and decisions that are being made need to include the executives. Could be the risk in sales, maybe with sharing data on Salesforce, for example, is the biggest risk. That could be true. So so having the board have the context to understand why the decisions are being made um, to prioritize one thing versus another thing, I think is extremely important. Uh, as a board member myself, and you you know this, Kavita, I always ask what things didn't make it into the budget. I want to see those. I want to see which things didn't make it because maybe I'd rather spend the additional two to three million bucks to get those things in. Because I want to make sure that the oversight is actually oversight. I'm actually looking at not just what we're being told is the right set of things to do, but also what is what is the things that are not being. We lost it. Uh-oh. Uh-oh.
3: See, this is where I could answer a question for you and then you compare yeah. the two, yeah. So I think that- <laughs>
4: Sorry about that. My phone rang. Um, but but the 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 I think the thing is that that understanding that relative risk is is really really important for people. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and you know the second thing I think that is important is that the the board members also participate in understanding the process maturity of the organisation. You know whether it's through you know NIST NIST uh, engagements with the SIs for example to come in and look at process maturity because once you understand process maturity, which is a a, a bit of a proxy really for uh, repeatability, then you'll know where the gaps are in the organization that you can double down on. So I think I think that's a, um, yeah, th- those are two good things to think about. It's great. Um, so just, I wanna double click
2: on that a little bit. I have a little bit of feedback here. Um, with, with that said, right? What kind of cybersecurity expertise should board members have? Because, you know, if, to really exercise that level of oversight and and, and you know not just take boxes right. And based on what you just said, there's some inherent knowledge there. And 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 you know from a cyber security and risk management perspective, what uh, how are these board board compositions shifting right now to accommodate for that need?
4: Well, I think every board is thinking about what <laughs> level of. Uh, capabilities do they need inside the board to be able to ask the right questions. So, so that, that's the first thing to say. I, I, I've seen that, that happen. I think in companies whose vertical significance to the vertical they serve um, is important. Let's call them systemically important companies. They're thinking about also the regulators for the vertical that they're part of. How do we have to face off to them? What SLAs do we need to hit for them? Many of those SLAs are much faster than the SEC's four days. By the way, they could be four mm-hmm. hours for material disclosure of customer information, as an example. So I think I think they've got to they've got to get all of those things kind of understood and in sight uh, to be able to be um, rounded in how you make those decisions. Uh, but back to Sam's earlier point, I think risk is something that boards understand pretty well, and if you can talk in the language of risk, right. And that usually involves understanding what the outcome is if the risk that we've identified actually happens. And so starting to put that in financial terms, I think helps people get their head around it. That also helps with materiality, which you know yeah. is going to end up being a financial discussion as well as a disclosure discussion as well. So, so all of those things are, 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 are an important uh, way of synthesizing and joining together, if you like, the experience that the board brings in oversight of risk in general um with the practicalities of what is often quite a technical risk uh, in terms of cyber security but to answer the question specifically i think that boards need to become more cyber aware and mm. in some in some cases they need cyber experts on the board depending on what kind of company it is i don't think that's going to be prescribed by um regulators or markets or whatever uh, i think honestly boards of directors need to look at their own constitution and what business their company is in, and make mm. a decision about how important that is or not. We're certainly seeing advisors being hired by boards for this purpose as well, yeah. uh, quite broadly actually. And we're also seeing CISOs from other companies being asked to do that kind of role uh, as well as a as a you know an adjunct role, almost like a board position. So all of those are happening.
2: Some significant level of introspection, I think, definitely um, is, is required, right? Um, and, yeah. and, and and on an ongoing basis as well. We have you, gonna, yeah, sure. Exactly. Yeah,
3: I was I was gonna say, um, I, I think it might be worth saying that some of our audience is probably board member and some of it's probably CISO. And I'm not sure the degree of overlap, but for the in, for the CISO <laughs> side and for the cyber side, um, the role the board should take in most companies is one of asking questions, right? And this is this is super important. And so that's why I think some of what Andy said was what he said. Yeah. Um my observation has been that that so far, most boards are trying to get people that have other skills and experience as well as cyber. No one has yet to my very rarely do I see, oh, let's go get someone because they are a cyber only person. Um, and the other thing that I'd say is that that even though boards are supposed to have a more of a governance role mm-hmm. uh, and not officers of a company, they're not supposed to be doing the execution. That can change in smaller companies. That can change in not for profits or where resources sometimes, when something's getting off the ground, that line can become blurred. And I think as companies become more mature, that line should become more distinct. But I do want to also mention that um, in a crisis, things go crazy, right? So, there's so be you should, yes, you should tabletop and game things out. And yes, you should have lines of communication, but really also include the legal department in terms of what and how you communicate, because when you put things in writing, it becomes part of the record. And uh, many information security people tend to overstate things when they're trying to make a point. Instead of saying, we have a vulnerability, they say, we have an earth-shaking vulnerability. And that type of language can overemphasize things. So get in the habit of convening people and having a discussion. And when you write it down, write it down with, with, with a view to posterity. What will this play out like to a neutral audience in the far future? Because it's exactly what happens. This stuff becomes
4: part of the discoverable record for, for eternity, effectively. Yeah. I mean, just just to double click on that for one second. I mean, when you've worked in financial services, what you've learned over the years is that anything you write can be on the front page of the Wall Street Journal the next day. And I honestly think you need to think the same way about this. Yep. Anything yep. that's discoverable is material evidence, which the papers will be quite happy to put on front page of the Wall Street Journal. 100%. So, yep. so, and if you look at kind of the, the couple of uh, very public um, you know, lawsuits that have occurred, um, those quotes have actually been included in the articles. So I think it's reasonable to assume that will be the case going forward as well. And they haunt you, yeah. True.
2: For we have tons of great questions <laughs> from our audience, so
1: let's
4: go through I'm gonna,
2: them. Yeah, I'm pull some up here. Um, so I think this one's for you, Sam. Sam mentioned that oh. the government urges businesses not to pay ransoms. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, threat actors are filing SEC claims against it <laughs> Yeah. People. How should businesses respond if threat actors demand ransom and threaten to file an SEC report they pay yeah. themselves or do something else?
3: It, it, it's a it is insane that this has happened, but it's it's not so much a report as it was a tip. Um, the ransom the ransom gangs like to do their double and triple extortion, right? Which is pay me and it will quietly go away, which it won't, by the way, right? Because it will still become public knowledge you have to disclose unless you're breaking the law. And that, that doesn't, not only does that not look good, don't do that. Um, but they don't like to be ignored and, and they threaten to out you if you don't pay as well. So you... You know, your business will be shut down and you won't have access to your data. Your availability goes away. But now the confidentiality will be violated even further. And so uh, this has happened recently where they tipped off the SEC that a company um, had, been, in fact, been compromised by them. And that was to increase the pressure and the likelihood that future victims will pay. Um, I think the question of how the SEC deals with that has to be seen. On, and uh, I'm not a lawyer, I have to say that jurisprudence will play out my suspicion is that the way that it will go is um it will be very much focused on the company and whether or not it transgressed in its behavior regardless of the source of the tip you know i think what we have to do is say forget the criminal right one day they'll have their comeuppance or they won't we have to make sure that we behave correctly on this side of the line and i and i i think that's what that's the tone the sec has to take regardless of the source of the tip if you broke the law we're coming after you if you break the regulations you'll have to pay the price um, and uh, yeah uh, um, it's, it, this is one of those things that should have been predictable by the
4: way and i would expect more of it maybe maybe just to, to add to that too i mean i think the um it's true everything you said is true but i think it's also true that if you see something you need to say something and it's yeah. not okay to joke about it on i am with your friends which also turns into material evidence, evidence uh, yeah. you know, as, as in, as in one of the more recent lawsuits there. So, so again, and that goes back to the same kind of behavior from, from research analysts in 99, 2000, um, you know, you mm. will, you will be penalized and you might be banned from the industry for life, by the way. Oh um, yeah. You know, which is I'd... what's happened to some of those people. So I, I think, I think it's very important to, um, to be very transparent almost whistleblower like transparency for people mm. inside companies because executives often don't know these things and they need to know um and and you know putting it in their language definitely helps if they don't talk cyber then put it in their language this issue could stop your sales team selling anything for 30 days or whatever the issue is so i do think it's important to do that
3: yeah, I think it's generally good advice that doing the right thing is a good look. Uh, it, it, is, it, it, is, it, is, it is in your best interest to be seen to be a good person. Um, and, and that this was in, in a world where everything is ultimately findable. Um, do that. Now, is that, is that altruistic? I don't really care. It's just true.
4: No, it's just the right thing to do, isn't
3: it? Yeah. Yeah. It is also the right thing to do. So do it. Uh, you know, doing the wrong thing is is the wrong thing to do and it could bite you. So, you know, strive to do the right thing. Put your rationale down the, to the, the best of your knowledge. This is the best thing to do. You're not expected to be perfect. You're expected to be pursuing the best thing to do. Values mm-hmm.
2: yeah. matter, right? I mean, no, they do. Yes. yes. Um, okay. So we have another question, I think, specific to that. And we talked yeah. about, you know, Boards are very accustomed to managing risk, and now we're kind of shifting that vernacular to managing cyber risk as well. So for board members who, and this is another question uh, from our our audience, Uh, for board members who may not have a deep technical background, what are the key indicators or metrics they should focus on to effectively evaluate and contribute to discussions on cybersecurity strategies? So how to reframe in the right vernacular?
3: Either one of you. Well, I, 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 so I, I sit on some boards, mostly not-for-profits and startup. I sat on a public board at one point for SSH. But uh, I would say there isn't actually a metric. Um, okay. What you what you really want to do is, is to try to gauge the health of the program. And uh, metrics are going to come to you. Uh, and so if the CISO, if he or she can't explain it, they probably don't know it well enough. And, I, and I, I mean, look, uh, cyber, cyber literacy, as Andy kind of mentioned earlier, is very important. And having perhaps advisors, as you also mentioned, Andy, is important. But in the end, this is grokkable. It's understandable, mm-hmm. right? This is, this is not, frankly, it's not rocket science. The technical details are difficult and the implementation is difficult, just as finance is difficult or the, or the law is difficult. But if a CISO can't stand in front of you and explain it in terms that are understandable, uh, and so that you understand what the metrics are, they're doing it wrong. Yeah. And therefore, you should be able to have business conversations about the function. It's intimidating, incidentally.
2: It's an evolution of the role. Right?
3: But uh, there are fairly simple cyber literacy courses, incidentally, and certifications people can get. This is not an onerous task. It is nothing like the amount of time you have to spend as a board member. Um, And so you can do those. There are some things explicitly designed for boards that you can, you can take and you can can have people come in, but I'm leery of just do this metric, right? So you're going to see some to do. Sometimes you'll, you'll see what, what I call output metrics or calories burned. I care much more about outcome metrics. And so what I care about is what are the results, right? And so what is the program doing? What is it focusing on and why? And those ultimately should be around risk reduction and being more resilient and being able to recover faster and it should be tied to the information and the services you want to maintain and so there's lots of examples of this but by asking questions what does this metric really measure what does what and this is back to the question point um how does this service over the long term what does improvement look like what does bad look like asking these questions of a cso they should be able to answer this after they've described what the metric is when when do you know this is no longer the metric for us is a good question as well. And, um, you know, then you can say, how do we know that the program is is successful and it's time to, to re-gear or change our strategy? And so think in terms of questions rather than asking for certain metrics. Andy, I don't know what, what your take on this is, but I'm fascinated uh, given some
4: of the boards you sit on. Well, I think you have to start off with um, understanding... What are the most valuable assets that you have? Um, might be property, might be people, might be uh, services and products. Um, And how are those crown jewels themselves being protected? What you often find is that it's less than 20% of the total assets that are truly valuable in a business. And you should be prioritizing those. I mean, usually those would be confidential or strictly confidential. If you think about the NIST framework for assessing. Uh, the importance of, of of a piece of information or or a document mm-hmm. on how to do something or, and so on. So first of all, answering the question, what are the crown jewels of this business? And the second question, how are we protecting them? Those are good questions to ask in my in my opinion.. Yeah. Um, the third question is, how consistently can we protect them? And this goes, goes back to the uh, NIST assessment framework of process maturity. If you remember back to Six Sigma or any of the process maturity frameworks you might know from prior lives, it can be anything from chaotic to repeatable. And usually it's somewhere in between, right? So if it's chaotic, the chances are that you're not, you're going to miss something, right? That yes. That's the chance. The chances are you are. If yeah. you're at a like, and it's a scale from one to five, right? So if you think about maybe being at a 2.3 or 2.4, yeah, it's okay. But if the industry depends on you, is 2.4 good enough? No, it's probably 3.5 to 4. Right, so 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 I find that that bringing people in to look at the process maturity is one of the best measures you can get of how well a company is actually managing itself, and therefore the risk program uh, that they're part of. So I think those those are those are really important things uh, to ask, and and they will create metrics like the the risk scores for each of the uh, controls is is very important. The final thing is, and this comes from our due diligence practice this uh, at Santa least East we ask what controls do you have
0: yeah.
4: and there are 48 control types that we're looking for and usually people say they've got somewhere between 20 and 30 of those covered that's a good question to ask the second question is the killer question can you evidence the controls that you have that's Are you following the processes that you say you're following and can you evidence that you've done that mm. and generally mm. what happens second question is that you get, um, you know, much less uh, coverage on the answers. So if it's 48, and you maybe got 20 to 30, maybe you get 15 that can be evidenced. And sometimes in due diligence, that's material, sometimes it isn't, right, you got, got to decide but but that's a good way of thinking about it. what control framework are you using? And then, you know, is the control framework being applied equally to all assets? Or are you actually making sure that the crown jewels are protected first and better? Right, so these, these are important questions to, to understand.
3: I, I'd also caution boards against uh, reading too much into things like red teaming. Um, there's, there's, there's a desire to say, well, you failed a red team, you must be bad, as if, as if it was a score in a game. Um, and, and I often say, let's, let's take the example of a basketball game, right? If, if you take one basket and you stop the play and say, Who, who's the best team in the league? You don't have enough info. So a red team is kind of like one game. You can't tell who's going to win the season. What you're really looking for is performance over as many games as you can get and seeing how is the team playing generally. Much more important than the score in any one given game or even over a series of games. And that's what you're trying to find as well in cyber. So I've seen many boards get angry with their with their CISOs or take it out on the team because hey, they failed their red team. Does that mean they're incompetent? I just I just I want to caution you about the to people listening against using that sort of metric because I've seen it too often.
4: Yeah, I agree with that. I think I think a good red team will always find a way in. Always, so you, yeah. and if that, you That's go, good, if right? Then you can go fix it, yeah. I mean, Ed, Ed Amoroso wrote a great post on LinkedIn uh, the week before last, which basically said, you should assume you're already compromised and, mm. and work from there. And, and I remember in, in 1992 or three, uh, Larry Ellison came on site to BT where I worked at the time who was Oracle's biggest customer. With their head of security, and he, he gave a speech, and his speech said, even though there was, we literally had just done the Janet Arpanet project. The internet existed, but only for people who understood Gopher and FTP, right? So, so 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 so, this guy said, this guy said, when I protect systems, I always assume bad guys have access to my network. Uh-huh. It's just a, it's just a way of thinking, and and so I think I think that also helps. I mean, there is there is a bit of healthy paranoia I think to have, and 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 protecting systems and services as if the network were uh, compromised is something we do at zscaler for our customers i mean we we we, we can anticipate that endpoints might be compromised but still make sessions safe for example yeah so, I'm,
3: with, I, I'm with you there i wrote a i wrote a, a a short um short book a while back with general dumford from the former joint chiefs of staff on defending forward and cyber and there were six principles. The first was assume you're compromised and number six was assume you're compromised, right? <laughs> Let's come back to that. Right. Yeah. Um, so it, it, Ed had it totally right. And, uh, and I think it's the presumption that there's somebody in the system go find them is the most healthy way to do it.
2: It's very
3: yep.
2: true. Now, so we've touched a lot on kind of, you know, definition of policies and implementation of controls. Right. Um, what about, you know, Cybersecurity maturity assessments, right? You know, specifically looking at NIST and CISA, other ways to sort of benchmark uh, against industry peers. Um, How familiar do we want or require boards to be with these, um, and as well as, you know, the executive leadership team? And then I think it's a two part question. Secondly, what about process maturity and ensuring a commitment like to repeatability around these? So, I don't know which one of you wants to tackle like maybe the first part, looking at third, you know third party or industry benchmarks around maturity assessments, right? And then um, mm. process maturity as once we you know once we set and let's not forget um, and and let's go back and as Andy said, you know, can you can you evidence these, right? Can you are these repeatable?
4: Yeah, if you, if you maybe go back to the sporting analogy for a minute, you think about basketball. I have a good friend who, whose daughter was one of the best shooters at basketball in her age group, all the way up, and she wasn't tall either. She just spent ages and ages on shot metrics, and she she could shoot from almost anywhere on the court and score. And 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 the thing is that 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 repeatability is actually what creates the consistency of outcome. It's about knowing that you can do that from anywhere, and it's about knowing that you've done the practice. And in 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 the cyber case. The practice is understanding your process risk for sure, that's definitely part of it. But it's also making sure that you've got improvement programs against all of the things that you want to improve. It's also the case that you should have outcomes that you're trying to get to. If you're at 2.3 and you're trying to get to 3.5, can you get there in a year? Probably not, probably gonna take two years because changing the way people think and act is one of the hardest things to do in the world, right? You know, running change programs, it's all about communicate, communicate, communicate. You want employees to react differently to phishing males you've got to keep training them you've also got to keep testing that they're trained by the way too so, so 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 to me this is this is like a game it's like a game in the sports sense of the word that goes on forever it's 24 7 and and you're always looking to understand how your team is set versus its peers but actually more importantly versus the bad guys in this case. So so it's always an attack-defense mindset. This is the way to think. Mm-hmm. Sometimes attack is the best form of defense. Some, sometimes, you know, strong defenses can win games, right? So so I wish that were true of the Jets, by the way, but, but that's, 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 a, that's a whole other discussion. But I do think, though, that you've got to think carefully about how you want to um, assess um, those process maturity metrics and where do you want to get to?
3: Yeah. Um, there. Are, by the way, um, I'm very leery of, of of using things like attack surface management tools, external ones in particular, uh, uh, as proxies for maturity. They're not. Um, they can tell you quite a bit about the t- external attack surface, and you can infer a few things about them, but they aren't. Um, things like CMMC are a better way to do self assessment. It's best when it's used as a tool of yourself, and then it's about it's honestly about how you talk to your peers. Because you can do more in a peer group, for instance, with the ISACS, um, you can do more sitting with your peers and talking about what you're good at collectively. What they, you know, how should you focus on improving as a group, um, rather than just comparing? Um, and especially boards wanting to know how do we do compared to others in our class. It's actually not that meaningful an answer. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I, what you want to do is set what are your targets. And by the way, if you look at uh, if you look at the maturity scales within CMMC, achieving a one or a two on the scale is actually quite significant. And so people may go, oh, what, you're only a one or a two? No, 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 it takes a lot of time to get there. It's about the rate at which you're improving your maturity
0: mm-hmm.
1: and
3: what your goals are and what you need to get to. Um, and I, I'd also say that uh, in this age to, the, to to where the conversation sort of went of, of LLMs and Gen AI, what we're gonna see is far more effective phishing and social engineering coming in particular, because of what it does with language. Mm-hmm. I think that we've, we're going to have to, outside of cyber, get, get much tougher on process. When, you're, when it, you can get a, not just phishing, but deep fake, that sounds like the personality of your CEO actually calling you, then you're gonna have to say, no, I'm sorry, I don't care who you are. you know. And, and you have to be able to say it to your CEO and test this. This is the way the money moves in the company. Right, That the CEO of your company will never call and ask you for gift cards, right? for instance. And so we're going to have to firm up processes beyond cyber much more diligently. So to your point, Andy, yes, awareness, but we're going to have to take that away and internalize what it means from process improvement and process maturity everywhere. Mm-hmm. And I also think that we have a chance to actually throw some deception in and actually start to improve from deception perspective using those same tools, make it a more hostile environment for the opponent as well. But that's getting too much into the weeds. I think right now, what the board should be asking is questions about where are you on the maturity scale? Do you have objectives around that? And how are you going to take care of improvements in language by the opponent with social engineering?
4: What are you going to do?
2: I mean, very sorry, sorry, Andy, go
4: on. No, I do think that the, the concept of always verify that's part of, of zero trust mm. is in yeah. that voice and video example. right? I mean, when, when, when I get hit up on Facebook by someone who looks like my father, who's unfortunately no, no longer with us, I mean, I can ask them one question and, and, and know what kind, of, what kind of attacker they are, by the way. So, so and, and I think if you believe something isn't likely to be the person you think it is, asking a simple question that you both know the answer to is always the right thing to do. And, and nine times out of 10, if your gut is right, probably they can't answer the question either.
3: And by the way, if you if you are a board member or a CEO and you don't have your badge and you go to the office and a junior person actually has the courage to challenge you on it, reward them.
2: True. Sure. It's I mean this user awareness training that you know we we need to kind of shift culturally. Right mm. now, I want to wrap up that discussion we had around process um, and benchmarking, uh, and I think a lot of this has been because of. Kind of this outside in assessment mentality that we've had with risk and I think really asking about you know what is our inside out methodology as well in terms of you know how organizations assess risk and manage risk and that's shifting target, right yep. um, Let's go to long-term impact of SEC charges. Uh, uh, like those that have been filed um, against CISOs at companies like SolarWinds and Uber. These are all major public organizations, and we've seen sort of this new precedence, right? Um, and, and how are CIOs and CISOs to communicate with their board and executive team upon these incidents? Because it's it's a scary place now, It's it, in, in a sense, these, these roles. I mean, I know a lot of, you know, everybody has, you know, uh, coverage, etc., but but let's talk about how scary it is to be a CISO today in a public company.
4: Yeah, um, I have a lot here, Andy. Do you want to go on this one? Or should I? I? I'm okay either way. Okay, Well, what I start? I mean, I think I think that the um, the Joe Sullivan case in particular started a set of conversations with CISOs and their boards about how much is the right amount of indemnification and liability for them to have. And should they be part of DNO insurance. And truthfully, I think if you look at the average lifespan of a SISO role, which I think somewhere between eighteen and twenty four months, but don't quote um you know, um that that story tells its own uh tales. And so, you know, the, the the opportunity for the CISO to be the scapegoat for a security incident is there almost every day, actually. And if you believe in collective responsibility, then you've got to actually get the executive team to take the um, the pain with the good, right? You bring in great sales numbers, everyone's happy, everyone gets paid more. You have a risk incident, everyone's unhappy, and they figure out together how they're going to solve that problem and stop it ever happening again and maybe they look at their own thinking around posture and process and start mm-hmm. to think about other things that could happen to them on the basis that this one happened. Now, it can't be, the is almost required to be superhuman, right? And, and, and truthfully, people have superpowers, that's true, but that's all coming from experience. And many CISOs that have been promoted into role are promoted two promotions ahead of the rest of the world. Because there aren't enough CISOs. We're still yeah. short millions of CISOs worldwide. So if we don't want to make it the role of, of penalty, what we actually want to do is encourage people to stay, encourage persistent intent in companies to be the best uh, they can be in terms of cyber protection. What we need to do is get to a collective responsible outcome, in my opinion, um, mm-hmm. both within companies and between boards and the companies as well. There needs to be a distance between boards and the executive management team. You can't have people all saying yes too easily. It's not gonna work. You want people that say no, you want people that ask hard questions. But within a company, blaming the CISO is a story and a tale that has gone on for decades Mm. at this point. And I think it's time really for people to say, this isn't actually gonna help. By the way, the person that you're firing is the person that just spent two years learning exactly what situation your cyber defense is in. And so my, my personal point of view is that until the blame shifts away from the CISO and it becomes a much broader executive um, program, not, not blame, it becomes a program. And how do you keep getting better and better? How do you keep getting the process mature up? How do you keep blocking? How do you keep red teaming all the time? How do you keep doing these tabletop exercises once every two months, maybe with the executive team, once a quarter with the ball? Because you just got to get better and better at it. And if you look at any team building, read Alec Ferguson's book, read any book on team building, it's all about bench strength and continued intent. That's what wins in the end. So that that's my answer. Go ahead. It's kind of yeah. risk, business risk. Right. At the end
2: of the day, it's it's not the responsibility of the CISO alone, but it's a uh, you know, business mandate. And that's yeah. right. The shared responsibility needs to be there.
3: So so I I would add, Andy, agree with everything you said, especially about it being a conversation now that that people are having. Um, However, the two cases are very, very different. So the the first thing I'd point out about Joe is that he, he was a lawyer. More than that, he was an assistant attorney general, which means he was a prosecutor. And most CISOs are not, right? So let's keep in mind that what he did, he was fully aware of the consequences around. And we as a group, as a tribe, we did rally around him Right. In ways that we didn't really understand what was happening, but one of our own was being affected. And that wasn't necessarily something that, that the world really respected. We're growing up as an industry. Your point about 18 to 24 months, spot on. So not only do do a lot. By the way, uh, John Oldsick over at ESG did some primary research into what it's like in the stress and anxiety levels and mental health of CISOs. Oh, yeah. Something like 37 percent want out. Like they want to resign and before they even get there because of this. So here we are trying to build the numbers up and a lot of people are studying it at school and the waste is enormous, right? I remember when it was 13 months was the average, right? It, it, absolute disaster. Now, now, when we get to Tim Brown, it's very different because Tim is alleged to have said some things um, that were found in discovery that are not wonderful. But what he did was what he's supposed to do in many cases from the outside. So I'm interested in how this plays out in the jurisprudence because he brought risks to the board, and he's not an officer of the company. He was a CISO, meaning he wasn't actually in that top rank of executives. So things like it wasn't in the 8K filing. We don't know the timing. We don't know if an, if, if, uh, if, uh, if, uh, an adjustment should have been published afterwards. We don't know what that internal dialogue was like. And frankly, a lot of people are paying armchair quarterback on this one. But the message should not be, hey, CISOs, don't go and do this. The, because because we have to be the advocates and the voice of risk being brought. And sometimes we're told no. And I want to know in the discovery and in what happens, what was the compensating control when he was told no? What was the residual risk? None of that is yet known. So we're all as a community now in this case where he's not a lawyer and it looks like he was doing the things he should have done. Now we all want to see how this one plays out because Joe was different, right? Jo- yeah. Joe was a lawyer. And so... I had less sympathy in that case personally, and I'm fine saying that, but in the case of Tim, we're all going, so what does this mean long-term? Because there's, you know, the company's involved and he's involved, but he's the named one. And it couldn't have been him alone.
4: I'm just gonna say that.
2: Yeah. Makes sense. Um, Andy, you were were gonna say something
4: before I jump to- Um, I just just think the requirement for for collective responsibility and accountability is true in every case, Mm. right? And and I agree we don't know exactly what happened at Uber, or maybe we know more about what happened at Uber than we do at SolarWinds. but I think the point is that from a governance perspective and from a control perspective, um, you know, executive teams, people who are, you know, section sixteen officers or direct reports of mm-hmm. CEOs or whatever, are part of deciding what risk level is acceptable for the business and what risk posture is acceptable for the business. And the CISO is part of how we execute the plans to to mitigate that and to improve our process maturity so i think that's probably the right the right uh ending point really we want people to think carefully about where they're setting the bar there and how far they want to move it well said
2: well gentlemen um we're kind of coming to the end of our session but i do want to touch upon zero trust the con you know the, the the concept of zero trust as as we round this you know session out um andy Focusing on this book, we have, you know, I want to make sure everybody gets a copy. You know, definitely, um, we'll Thanks have, <laughs> of course, <laughs> we'll have the um uh, displayed, obviously. But you know, let's let's talk about, um, you know, you you did talk about how zero trust, um, you know, is essentially the right framework for you know boards and business professionals and in, in, in managing cyber risk. And mitigating cyber risk. Um, can we can you kind of highlight what what some of the key tenets are that you focused
4: on here? Sure. I mean, first of all, I mean, you know, it's it's not just us saying that. I mean, the White House has said it and a number of other folks have too. I think the per- that the reason that zero trust as an architecture is the most important initial approach to take from a blocking and tackling perspective is that once you understand how you are exposed to the internet. And this is in the broadest sense of that word these days. It's not just about what services and websites and all the rest of it. Your people are exposed to the internet. Their phone numbers can be got very, very quickly from the internet and you can be called and phished immediately. So just thinking about that and how important it is to, to protect that. Is, is 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 paramount to most businesses. So what zero trust does is it allows you to reprivatize many of the parts of your externally facing organization. Particularly helps in third party and fourth party risk, where maybe you're accessing the platforms over the internet, but you don't need to. They could be they could be direct connections. Um, you know, I, I I think the 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 core of zero trust is that you don't trust anybody without verifying and anybody can be a service it can be an application it could be an iot device it can be a person uh, and it could be a data center even and so you know this 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 notion that that, that zero trust requires verification before moving forward if you think about a simple analogy you know y- you have to provide credentials when you go to a liquor store to buy a bottle of wine right you know they don't ask me anymore sadly because i don't think i really look like i'm 21 <laughs> but but but, 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 but. This this notion that credentialing and is 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 used is a very simple analogy to use. Everyone understands that. You know, um, same with the castle and drawbridge analogy, right? If you've got a bad guy inside the castle, it doesn't matter if the drawbridge is up. That's inside a thread, right? So so just just thinking about how you mitigate that, not only for external clients and customers and third parties that you might be integrating with, but for your own employees as well. This is a very very important thing to understand. The concept of lateral movement is key to to zero trust and understanding if you let someone into the castle, maybe they can go anywhere in the castle that they want to, but actually what you really want to do is let them come into the room that you want to meet them in and then let them back out over the drawbridge when they when they leave. so 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 to me, I think zero trust for boards is about the analogy of um, every transaction being checked uh, being verified before it is executed. And that gives you a large, large protection that you wouldn't have if you didn't do that.
2: Thanks, Sandy. Sam, did you have anything
3: to add? To that? Yeah, a couple of things. Uh, very simply, trust is proportional to risk. And so, if you're if you're in an, in an environment where you've minimized trust, you're minimizing risk by default. And the second is that when you put when you finally when you put in an authorization infrastructure that does effectively just-in-time connection. The notion of lateral movement either changes or goes away in many cases. Discovery mm-hmm. goes away, but you build a platform to do more interesting things, right? That's when that's when, as a company, you can start to inspect and make risk-based decisions. You can do more granular things in terms of access. You can start to say, where does data go or not go? And in fact, we talked earlier about you know, how much I didn't trust things like external attack surface management. You can actually start to measure what your security maturity is when you do this correctly. And so I think once you've done this transformation, it changes IT. It changes how you do and become application centric. It also changes so that you become risk centric in in your security decisions. And that becomes much more visible to the whole organization, including the board. So I think that's why, because the first one is, okay, less trust, less risk. The second is you've got a whole new platform to be risk centric.
2: Thank you, Sam. Well, gentlemen, that's about all the time we have for today's um, Executive Connect. I want to thank you for spending the time with us.
0: Thanks for listening to the CIO Evolution. Check back with your podcast provider regularly for more episodes. You can find more episodes along with other podcasts on the CXO Revolutionaries website at revolutionaries.zscaler.com. Statements by Zscaler podcasters and guests are informational only and should never be construed as legal advice. You should consult your legal advisor on matters related to you or your business. Zscaler makes no warranties, express, implied, or statutory as to the content of this podcast, and it is provided as is. Content on this podcast may contain forward-looking statements that are current as of the date of the recording and subject to change. These statements are subject to the safe harbor provisions created by the Private Securities Litigation Reform Act of 1995. Full legal disclaimers are available at revolutionaries.zscaler.com. Copyright 2021.